you tell me you're built, you're building a building today. Is your labor costing you more than it, than it was two yes. years ago? Every, every, every building is, is you know, it's, more. it's kind of a perfect storm, you know, <laughs> just to speak in Boston, it's a per- perfect storm. You've got material costs that have run dramatically, partially because of the pandemic. You've don't have a lot of land. You've got a very low interest rate environment and that's just, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast with your hosts, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And uh, joining us today is our guest. David Grossman from the Grossman Companies. Excellent. Welcome. You made it. You found us. Yeah, it was hard, but uh, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks, God. I'm a big fan of yours, so thank you. No, oh. I appreciate you coming in. This office is challenging to find. So Dan and Ray uh, have a new spot in South Boston. Well, it's good because then, you know, if we're proposing something and people don't like it, we're far enough away. They can't throw tomatoes at us, you Bingo. know? Smart. Always thinking. <laughs> Try to keep things anonymous. If I get a parking ticket, I'm sending you guys the bill. <laughs> podcast can sponsor that. Sure. Yeah. The podcast is just a giant write-off. So it it'll just contribute to that. Yeah. We're still, we're still looking for a sponsor, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I suppose. So if the Grossman companies theoretically wanted to, uh, you know, theoretically, talk, theoretically, theoretically could. yeah. All right. We never so, get those kind of calls. <laughs> So what are the Grossman companies? What are they? What is the Grossman Yeah, companies? no, um, we are, it's a family business. Uh, uh, some of you may or may not know, uh, originally it was a lumber business, which was sold in 1969. When the business was sold, it had 83 family stockholders and 81 lumber yards in New England and New York. And when the family sold the business, we kept the real estate. So that's how we got into the real estate business. Our father was graduating college uh, when he woke up one day and read in the newspaper that the family sold the business. Um, uh, And then the family, uh, we bought some assets in the 70s. And then in 1980, our father and grandfather amicably bought out the 79 other family stockholders and formed what is today the Grossman Companies based in Quincy, Mass., uh, really buy uh, value add assets in New England with a concentration in greater Boston and slowly survived the, slowly grew in the eighties, survived the eighties, same in the nineties and two thousands. And, um, I joined the family business in 2009. I'd worked for seven years for others. Uh, I worked for Wells Fargo for five years and Louis Dreyfus property group an office developer in Manhattan for two years. Uh, and my brother joined two years later, also having worked for seven years. So, um, we're having fun. Our dad, uh, is still, uh, Still there. He's the chairman. Um, he's really phenomenal. We're very lucky to have him. He lets us kind of do our thing and enabled us to, to grow the business. So that was a lot. A, a quick question. First thing that came to my mind was having been in multiple businesses and being just in business in general for over half a century. Are there any challenges today that remind you of or your family of decades past? I mean, uh, it's hard to compare a pandemic to to decades past, but I guess what I, the comment I'd make is that our father has always said, uh, buy good real estate and capitalize it appropriately in a good market like Boston, and you'll be able to survive the, the ups and the downs. For and sure. certainly when I joined my dad in 2009, we were lucky in that we didn't have too many legacy challenges like some others, but we, listen, we certainly had two specific assets that were, that were difficult. And he was right. One was a self-storage facility in East Boston, um, which was 1,100 units which the family had to carry for a couple of years because it took a lot longer to lease up than we expected. But we were able to do that and we got through the downturn and, and ultimately became a very successful investment for, for the family and for our, most importantly, our investors. Oh, that's great. I was going to say, I feel like self-storage is on fire now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really unbelievable. What, what a business. Who knows what technology might do to it over time, but it's just a business. You know, we, 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 we developed that one facility and then we own a facility in, in Roslindale. So we really know urban storage. 
not sure we know it, but we pretend we do. Um, but it's just very good business. Once attendance in there, there the income is very sticky. And unlike an office building, um, it doesn't really cost any money to replace that tenant. Once they leave, you obviously aren't collecting the revenue, but it's not expensive to fill the space back up. And if they don't pay, it's a lot easier to... Uh, we, ha- we have a management do you watch company. Wars? <laughs> I do Storage not. Wars. Storage I, Wars. I, I have auction seen it. Wars. <laughs> We, we actually, uh, we, we had a, we had a tenant in our East Boston facility that was actually was living in it. No. Yeah. Wow. So, I can see that. Uh, what is that, the, what is the eviction laws around that? Yeah. That was one of the war yeah. stories I heard from my dad before I joined the family business. Wow. That's I, weird. Oh, it, oh yeah. Is the Grossman bargain outlet also part of the, uh, family? Yeah. You're not the first person to ask me that. So it is not. When the family sold the business in 1969, so the, the masthead, uh, remained Home Depot stole our colors. Another lesson that I learned from, from our father is not to make uh, deals for tax purposes. When the family sold the business in 69, 25% of the consideration was in stock in the, the company that bought the family business, and that company ended up going bankrupt five years later. So in any event, Grossman Bargain Outlet was formed long after the fact. Don't buy deals for tax. That's a good one. Mm. Sort of like we talk about opportunity funds, and uh, I forget who said it, but an opportunity fund deal is not going to make a bad deal good, but it can make a good deal better. That's a good point. That's a very good point. And, and just for anybody listening, hearing some weird noises in the background, if those are coming through, there's some work being done adjacent to our office. So we apologize for that. That sounds like uh, refinishing hardwood floors yeah. for 500. <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, the multi-tool trimming down some door jams. Maybe. Or, uh, That's a good one. Uh, shims. Cutting in a shower shelf. Are you guys real estate developers? Builders, developers, <laughs> a little bit. sort of. We, pr- we pretend to be, you know? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a hack, but... Um, I I do aspire to have a company name that is plural at the end, the Grossman companies, Procopio company that, that is, it's kind of a power play. So, so companies, so do you have multiple businesses under one, under the umbrella? Yeah. When, um, we're, we're trying, our father told us that our grandfather and he named the company that because the intent was to have multiple companies. So I, you know, I guess not, not really. But yes, we're really in two businesses today, given the family business roots in the lumber business. Um, and as I said, when we sold the business, we got into the real estate business. But given the lumber business roots, the family has always lent money to builders. Historically, it was a second mortgage business. My grandfather and his brother were two of the males that ran the business around the credit desk and lent money to builders when they came in. So in the 70s and, and 80s, the family continued to lend money predominantly my grandfather and his brother. My dad was never interested in the lending business. And it just so happened that. I worked for Wells Fargo, a bank for five years out of college. And when I joined my dad in the summer of 2009, the family had an entity that was intended to be lending money to builders, but really wasn't because my father wasn't interested, as I said. And, you know, hindsight being 2020, it was a great time to re-enter the lending business. So the second business we're in, which is really, um, you know, equal in size to our real estate business today is we lend money to builders, predominantly in greater Boston and markets that we know and with, and with people that we know. You guys consider yourself a hard money lender? I like to tell folks that we're a soft money lender because we're very relationship based. Uh We do a ton of repeat business with the same folks. So I think that speaks to kind of who we deal with and and they like dealing with us. But I think if you were just to put us in a bucket, yeah, we'd be in the hard money space. But our product, you know, our typical loan is just like a bank. It's a construction loan to a builder doing a condo conversion or building new or in the suburbs. And we just, we, we can move a lot more quickly. We don't need appraisals. We are obviously more expensive than a bank. We often provide a lot more flexibility. We can move more quickly. Sometimes builders are able to buy assets that they wouldn't able to be able to buy otherwise because we're behind them. So there's a lot of reasons that, that builders work with us. But yeah, I'd say in short, yeah, I'd, I'd say we're in the hard money space. What's your average size loan? Our average size loan is about a million five. 
we make loans from the, you know, $300,000 to eight, nine, $10 million range. But again, you know, our typical loan is nine to 12 months. It's somebody buying and building a condo, but sometimes we'll make a loan for two months to help somebody buy something. And the, the, the strategy for them is to take us out with the bank, but just they can't move as quickly with the bank and that's why they need us. Anything long-term, more like uh, rental type loans or multifamily loans? Yeah, no, uh, all, port, all of our loans are investor assets and they're all short-term. The, 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 the business model that we have is a short-term business, short-term, nice. short-term lending business. But on the other business, you you would you'd sometimes partner with. Yeah, as a commercial real estate owner, we're generalists. We buy, you know, the for us the five major food groups: office, industrial, residential, retail, and self storage. We occasionally buy land, but if we're buying land, we like to buy cash flowing land, and we are generally focused on buying assets in the call it the three to thirty million dollar deal size range. Again, very focused in Greater Boston, and I think what makes us a little bit different than others is that we have a desire to partner with other owner operator developers where hopefully a partnership, you know, the, the adage one plus one equals three. Um, so I would say about 60, 70% of the assets we've purchased in the last 11 years since my brother joined, about 70% have been, you know, with us as the sole operator sponsor. And then the other assets have been in partnership with another investor developer. Is that like the food groups? I'm just thinking of the the pyramid and which ones would be at the base <laughs> and the top. I suppose self-storage would be like the little triangle. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, like desserts, like only have a well, couple of them. Listen, yeah. most, uh, most investors concentrate in a specific area. So many self-storage investor operators focus solely on self-storage. It's just not the model that we have. We're generalists. What we've been buying over the last couple of years has been, frankly, retail and industrial. I didn't hear anything uh, related to like healthcare or biotech or anything like that. I know it's big here in Boston. Yeah. Again, the back to the generalists where we don't really specialize in those, you know, I, I'd like to think that we know what we know. We know what we don't know when we are not biotech experts. We're not healthcare experts. So those are just not places we've played. Now, it also so happens that, you know, being a biotech investor developer requires very, very deep pockets. And, we, you know, given we focus really on deals in the sub $30 million deal size, and I'd say our average deal size is probably 15 million. And that's total asset. It's just not a sandbox we play in. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Are you, so are you, uh, on that side of the business, are you funding it all yourself or do you have a pool of investors or a fund? Yeah, we have, we have wonderful investors. It's predominantly high net worth investors. So the way we operate is we find a deal, we source a deal. The family owns a portfolio, which is intended to be passed down to the next generation. But basically, if not a 1031 exchange, everything else we do is a joint venture where a single asset stands on its own. And we have because of the deal size, it's typically our family and high net worth investors alongside us. If, if we have a larger deal where the equity need is, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten million million, $10 million, we may go to an institution. But the way we operate is we'll go to an institution for probably 50 or 60% of the funds and the family and our investors will put up the balance. It's very important to us that we treat our investors like family and every single new deal we do, they have the opportunity to invest. So Oftentimes that means we're oversubscribed, but um, we'd rather that than, you know, we, we don't cherry pick deals. We do not have a fund. I know a fund is really fantastic for a lot of reasons for both operators and investors alike. It's just not a model that we've chosen on the real estate side of our business. Do your investors, do you use investors capital to fund your short term funding business or is that all in house funds, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, no. Well, you already asked. So I can't say <laughs> um, well, if you don't mind answering. Yeah. So um, the, when I joined in 2009, you know, the family had an LLC that had cash in it. Um, and we started investing that. And as we grew, we kind of passed the hat around and brought in friends and family on a deal by deal basis. And then in 2015, we actually outgrew that and we formed, we sort of formed a fund. 
where the strategy was all the, all the loan assets were commingled into one big bucket. And we had an institutional partner. And again, the family and our investors were alongside us. So, but again, it's not dead. It's, it's everybody's side by side. Uh, we're the sponsor and operator and make all the decisions on the ground. But that's how we've decided to fund that business. You guys um, had, some, had some vision for East Boston back before I think the general uh, group of real estate investors saw the value there. You know, I think uh, I was perhaps competing with you. It's probably an overstatement, but I was trying to buy things in East Boston <laughs> when you were, and I didn't win very often. Are but those your investor roots, by the way, Mark? East, East yeah. Boston, that's where you started? I was working for a large GC shop and they sent me to East Boston to look at a pier for Roseland Property Group out of New Jersey. And I was like, you're going to build this here and I can buy a two family for what right there? Okay. So th- that was my roots. That was my first uh, deal. But um, I, I tried to buy more. But, you know, David kept outbidding me <laughs> through, through a, a partner. Yeah, we, we, um, we shared a similar view that we thought there was a lot of opportunities in Boston. I, I lived in Manhattan for a couple of years and saw what happened across the pond in Jersey. Um, I also spent a couple of years in D.C. and saw, saw what was going out in the southeast quarter there. And just when, uh, when I started my career in Boston, East Boston at the time in the early 2000s was about to take off. There were a lot of deals approved on the water, never happened. And then once Roseland started, frankly, uh, in East Boston on Jeffrey's Point, we just had the view that, hey, once the institutional capital's here, it's going to um, result in some gentrification and people wanting to be in East Boston. And our view was, was that was certainly the case. We, we felt the proximity to, to downtown Boston was fantastic and that services would come. And we just, um, we did not really, uh, you know, again, we're, we're relatively risk averse. We do develop, we don't do a ton of development. And our, our approach there was trying to buy um, small buildings and, and renovate them and, and hold them. And that's what we did. We, but um, uh, again, to the point that I made about we're fond of partnerships, we found a partner uh, developer on the ground investor um, that we got to know and trust very well. Um, and we really kind of partnered up with, with him and we bought a number of buildings in East Boston and we continue to proudly own those buildings today. And is he retired now? He's like 35. He's about my age. I think he's on the beach somewhere. He's, uh, it's not in Boston anymore. (laughs) He's not, he's not retired. He is really unbelievable. He has continued to do uh, similar, invest in a similar strategy in New Jersey. And Alex actually has a very successful business called Rocket Club in that he started in New York where he effectively provides, uh, teaches and trains children ages six to 14 on entrepreneurship, oh, business, cool. oh, wow. philanthropy. It's really unbelievable. My son actually took, uh, took the course a little bit all over Zoom. So he started, wow. started in person on the ground uh, with a couple bricks and mortar locations and adapted quickly to the pandemic and has a, an online program now. So that's fantastic. Pretty, pretty unbelievable. I'm glad to hear he's not picking on other 29-year-old developers. <laughs> well, he is in Jersey. I think, I think, you, I think you guys have done all right for yourself. Yeah, we've done all right. It's nice to hear couple. that. I got his scraps. Yeah, it's nice to hear that, you know, once you reach a certain point, you can, you can focus on other endeavors that are near and dear to your heart, too. So that's cool. Definitely. Are there other, other areas? So you, that was, what, what, when was that? What year was that? Uh, we, we acquired the uh, 2013 to 2015. So is there another part of the city that you are targeting now? <laughs> Not specifically. I think we like, you know, I, I think um, we, we are looking to invest a little bit more in Dorchester, but I, I'd say our, our view is generally that uh, there's obviously been a tremendous amount of hardship uh, over the last 15 months and uh, hopefully the country and, and our city will recover. It seems to be recovering quickly, but just investing in Boston is, is a long-term winning proposition given the, the meds and the eds. 
so we're just big believers in the city. And, and I think if anything, Boston will be a beneficiary kind of as you go out three to five years from today from everything that's happened. So we're, we're just, we're believers in the city again, in a smaller way than some of the, probably the larger developers you guys have had uh, on this podcast. But so I, I think Dorchester, we, we are, we also like what's going on in Worcester, but have not really made any, any moves there. Dan's trying to get in, get in the new, the up and coming markets as well, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Looking for the secret info. No, just <laughs> trying to understand his business model. Well, we work there. in, we work in Dorchester and, and that's where we started. That's where we, we had our first projects. So that's near and dear to our hearts. Good. What are you guys seeing today? I mean, so what's interesting, back to your point about, you know, things got very challenging and they are still challenging for a lot of people. I think rentals took a huge hit and we always said, well, Boston has so many different industries, but I think the pandemic really exposed the fact that if people are all remote, then it does decrease demand. So if there are no students. Yeah. Without the student population, huge, huge drop in rents. I think that's going to be a real thing around the country, but I just don't see it affecting Northeastern, Harvard. BCBU, like if you're going paying 120 grand uh, for an education at name the B minus C plus school, I'll take it on Zoom. I'm all set. But if I'm going to enroll at, uh, you know, Harvard. Well, no, I mean, now I'm, that they're, I'm, they've all pretty much announced they're, coming, they're back coming back and the vaccines yeah. and the state's opening up soon. So but that's a big criticism generally. Uh, we always thought that that estate. was an insulation yeah. factor here that, you know, the city couldn't fall apart and it took a step back. It took a pause. But I, I, we're, we, already, we're, seeing, we're, we're yeah. already seeing the rental market come back in a big significantly. Way. We're, yeah. we're just as optimistic. Yeah. yeah, I do think a lot of schools are in trouble though. Just in just in uh, general, of, like de- decreasing. Learning. Oh, yeah. are you talking yeah. about m- not the major institutions? No, I mean yeah. for the local, like I said before, those those yeah, diplomas Harvard better have watch value. Out. <laughs> yeah, but you know, no, I, I I think I agree with you. I mean, even before the pandemic, I I saw that weren't there like some schools that were closing? Like mm-hmm. you were, there were some articles that Simmons, right? Did Simmons close? Uh, I think if not, I just spread a rumor. There's always going to be right. One of those schools in downtown. There'll always closed. be some churn, but it's an opportunity for another school to pick it up. As, I mean, because what else can you do with the property, right? Rather than redevelop the whole thing. So now it's a satellite campus for another school. So you guys, as part of the company's plural, you're you're going into more residential development. We're trying, yeah. How's it going? I mean, so far so good. We've acquired, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 buildings over the last 10 years. And only two of those investments have been residential in nature. Uh, our lending business is very focused on residential. So, you know, my brother and I have been banging our heads against the wall trying to figure out how to be more active in the residential space uh, as an owner, investor, long-term for the long-term. And what we've concluded is that we think there's an opportunity for us to be a developer or investor in, in the urban Boston, again, because we're a big believer, but in the smaller size space, 30 to 70 units where we can um, use our balance sheet, our relationships predominantly through our lending business, but also given our middle market focus and, and acquire and own, and in some instances, develop a portfolio of apartment buildings in the city which we think will be able to generate attractive returns over the long term, especially in an inflationary environment. And while we would not expect to be a seller of those anytime soon, we think as we acquire a portfolio and own hundreds of units, that ultimately that would be attractive to an institution. So we're focusing some of our efforts there in a bigger way than we have. As I said, we're we're really generalists, but I think we've now decided that we also want to focus really as a third business. I mean, we own commercial real estate, you know, all product type. We're in the lending business, and now it was a third business to elaborate on the companies. Um, We want to be a a larger owner of, of residential property. I like, I always feel like residential is a, uh, a red ocean. It's like a lot of competition. It's where everybody goes. I always feel like the grass is greener and maybe it's not, but I, I've always been intrigued 
being a residential guy, if I could get into, you know, industrial, into, uh, I mean, I guess office and retail is not a very good ocean to be in, but. Yeah, we, we experimented yeah. in that ocean yeah. and it did not work so well. Could have had a building for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Interested. I mean, not to digress, but we yeah. also, we like retail. Uh, I mean, yeah. obviously just as a broad brushstroke, there's a lot of. What type of retail? Well, Distressed I, I, retail? no, I, we like quality retail. We see in our portfolio where we've generally disposed of the secondary assets that we used to own. You know, quality retail and in, in, in infill markets, whether they're urban or suburban, there's demand there. Um, certainly rents may not be what they were, but I think the omni-channel retailers that have a great presence online, they need that brick. And they've, they've shown, they've proven, you know, look at Target's numbers today. They need good retail real estate, both to sell like, they, like the good old days, but also to distribute. So we, we like retail. We're a big believer. Especially, you know, we have acquired some grocer anchored assets or, or just frankly, single asset grocers over the last couple of years, which which we bought as income. But, you know, we thought if as a fail safe that that's those are development sites, like uh, single, in, tenant, in triple single net. tenant, triple yeah. net retail. Yeah. Nice. It seems like you've primarily concentrated on acquiring existing assets. You haven't done a ton of new ground up development. That's Have correct. You, is there a reason why you've steered away from that? Yeah. Cause when we go into our dad's office and ask him to sign a personal guarantee, <laughs> he's not that excited about it. Um, that's just, again, it's just kind of how we grew up. We're more, um, we're value add more risk averse players and it's a family business and, you know, sitting around the Thanksgiving table and, you know, talking about, you know, development challenges. It's not kind of where we played. We, we have done it. We lost a lot of hair in an 80-unit development we built in Alston. But listen, it was a great success for our investors, um, a great building for the city. It helped spearhead after New Balance a lot of the development over there. Um, so we, and, and listen, if you're a believer in Boston, if you're a believer in inflation, building new construction here is a, a great way to, at a minimum, preserve wealth and, and probably create wealth. Uh, yeah. So I'm a yeah, it's in inflation. It, it's just out the window, and, the price of a two by four. Tell yeah. me that's not inflation. Yeah, no, it's um, it's it's a little scary. Yeah, <laughs> um, and as much land as there is, it's it's incredibly scarce in this area. So yeah, anything you can get approved and built is it's an incredible value. So you, do, but you now you want to kind of kind of dabble into into that new construction ground up space, and so are you finding? I don't know how how long you've been looking, but are you finding any challenges? finding good opportunities? Well, I think our primary focus is going to be buying income, buying assets that we can improve and hold over the long term and, and just, you know, let inflation do its thing in, in a place like Boston. But we, because of the lending relationships we have in the build, with the builders that we mm -hmm. work with, over the last number of years, we have routinely been asked, hey, do you want to develop this 40-unit building or this 50-unit building? And we've always said, eh, it's too small for us. We're not really set up to do that. But now by bringing somebody on the team who is really focused there uh, and having capital committed to that strategy, it's that's, you know, for the right asset, that's not going to be a no anymore. It's going to be see. a yes. Do your offers have to be accompanied by a uh, pre-approval letter? It depends. Um, well, <laughs> I should hope the answer is no. As, as, as a lender, we often provide, you know, proof of funds and pre-approval letters to our builders, which, you know, is really enables them to acquire assets, especially if they can move quickly because we enable them to do that. Um, when we're a buyer, we don't typically need a proof of funds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. LOI, and a little check, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Relatively little. <laughs> Relatively. So that would be, but I, I get one, one of the reasons that, you know, one of the reasons we like we're focused in this area is I just, it's not, we're not going to compete with the institutions. That being said, if you look what we provide to builders today, before we form this venture, we really provide first mortgage capital that we can move quickly and enable them to build, you know, single family homes, small subdivisions or condo projects from three to 20 units really as a lender. 
Um, with a handful of our best builders, we definitely have provided equity capital, but those are for smaller deals. But by having committed equity capital to buy or build you know, 30 to 70 unit buildings, it really enables us to be a full stack solution to developers or sellers who, you know, are looking for a solution. So is one of your companies or, yeah, is one of your companies the construction arm? So if you were to develop something, would you be doing that in-house or would you be outsourcing that? Yeah, no, we would, we would certainly use a general contractor. Nice. Yeah. So you said you were bullish on, on Worcester. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, we're, we're, we're definitely not experts in Worcester. We've spent some time there with some developers, you know, frankly, similar to what we did in East Boston, looking to buy three to nine unit buildings, renovating and, and, and holding them. I think the ballpark there is really going to be a demand generator, predominantly because it's going to bring services there. And my sense from having spent a fair amount of time in Worcester now is that the, you know, the, the municipality is now really focused on driving traffic downtown. So if you just go to downtown Worcester today, you know, there's a great, you know, downtown with train station that can get you anywhere. Um, there's great employers, there's more employers coming and it's just been underinvested in. And, and it's my sense is, you know, there's restaurant, you know, rest of you, you know, today versus five years ago, there's a lot more restaurants there. You got a lot of people who are moving there, who have moved there and a residential supply housing supply that just is, is under invested and underdeveloped. So, um, and then just the relative value of, of, uh, renting in Worcester versus renting in, you know, Boston or Framingham, it's still a very compelling value. Is there a uh, express train from Worcester to Boston or is that something that was hypothesized? Hopefully there will be one day, but I think it's about 50 minute commute today. It's just like the ferry from East Boston to downtown that you could use your Charlie card on. I've been selling that for like 10 years. It's great. One day it will happen. (laughs) (laughs) Just like the Green Line extension, right? Every time. That's 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 getting closer, right? Yeah. Are you doing anything out in uh, Somerville, Somerville, Cambridge, outside we, of the city? We, we own a building in Union Square that we're really excited about owning, which will, you know, family owns will own for the long term. Uh, and then we've got a couple other small development sites that we're poking around. You mentioned inflation a few minutes ago. I think inflation is, is real. And uh, it's one of these self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Once people believe that inflation's coming, it often does because you change your behavior. If you own something, if you're selling something, well, we've been printing a lot of money. But when are wages inflating? I mean, that's the real thing. Like, it's just... Well, that's the problem. That's the disconnect, right? Everything's yeah, going to get mean, more expensive. It, but. it takes time for data to kind of run through and, and really, really hit the headlines. But, you know, there's a lot of employers that, as, as they should be, are raising the minimum wage. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you're just, you know, you, you tell me, you're, bu- you're building a building today. Is your labor costing you more than it, than it was two yes. years ago? Every, every, every building is, is you know, it's, more. It's kind of a perfect storm. You know, just to speak in Boston, it's a per- perfect storm. You've got... Um, material costs that have run dramatically, partially because of the pandemic. Um, you don't have a lot of land. Um, you've got a very low interest rate environment. And that's just, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I guess the biggest surprise we've seen on the, on the value side is that the urban condo market year to date has been very strong on the projects we're financing. We're, we're typically financing condos that are in the, you know, 600,000 to a million five range. Those are Low inventory and a lot of demand pricing is on the for sale side, pretty close to where it was pre-pandemic. Rental rates are still still pretty low. So you say finance, Five or 10% finance? below they were. I say both. <laughs> what, do, what do you say? I'm more of a, fi- I like finance. Okay. I, mean, you know, finance. I think it depends on the market segment, Bill, on the condo <laughs> side, right? Because I think that the during the pandemic, because we had some some higher end stuff that was for sale and that sat. So I think that that the, you I know, mean, we literally came online. That was a bad the time though. It was maybe it was just, time. I feel like your timing was, what wasn't, maybe your product is just not very no. high quality. 
<laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was garbage, actually. No, I, it was terrible timing, but it, I mean, it, everything is, it's all about timing, but we couldn't really do anything. We couldn't control it. The same dynamic that, that resulted in people wanting to be in the city pre-pandemic, you know, medium and longer term, I don't think that's changed at all. You know, young professionals coming out of college are going to want to be in the city. Yeah, no one wants to be um, in the And then empty nesters are going to want to be in the city. And frankly, you know, I think the YOLO effect, you only live once. And um, I think that over time, you know, there's, there's certainly a blip today. Uh, and that's going to continue for a little bit of time, but people are going to want to be back in the city. Yeah, we saw a, quite a bit of uh, the boomer generation starting to move back into the city, you know, pre pre COVID, and I think that that took a pause. But I think that's going to come roaring back as it was know. only because all the things you like about the city weren't open anymore, right. or, or, or of course, very limited, which is know? obviously knock on wood and a, all their kids short term phenomenon. Yeah, but it, it certainly made for good opportunities for anybody that had the foresight to. See, well, the suburban market went nuts. Suburban market went nuts and you've got, you know, a lack of inventory and price escalation and low interest rates. And, you know, uh, we focus inside Route 128 and I don't think there's unfortunately anything uh, in the near term that's going to prevent that the prices from continuing to rise. But listen, o- over time, we'll see how things shake out. I do think second homes on a relative basis will be more attractive uh, as an investment for folks. Over yeah, the, you know, the, the Airbnb were. model. There's just an article this past weekend in the Globe about vacation homes and the prices just skyrocketing. Yeah. Is that, you're talking about for this coming year, the projections? Yeah, I just, just currently as, like as a general statement, the attractiveness of having a second home, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, in a beach community or in the Berkshires or in New Hampshire, it just is, is more attractive because people are going to just want more space and um, be They want to get out of the city. Get out of town, yeah. Hey, what's your typical deal structure on a... Uh, on a, lo- on a soft money loan? <laughs> uh, we typically provide financing in the 80 to 85% of total cost range. By total cost, we're talking acquisition, construction, hard and soft costs, and interest carry. Um, we typically provide 80 to 85% of that. We typically require the balance of the capital to come in the form of equity from the developer and to come in up front. And if a developer is building to the margin they should be, which is, you know, 15% plus, that means our loan is going to be in the 70% of value south range. So our, our, our bread and butter structure is kind of the cash goes in up front and, and we provide the balance of the capital. We have an in-house construction manager who's great. So, you know, you literally send in a draw request and we fund within 24 hours. We can close real quickly. We do not need an appraisal. We've grown our business because we, in all instances, have done what we said we were going to do to our builders, and that's how we build our relationship. So we get a lot of referrals from existing builders, from attorneys, and we, you know, we probably have about 45 different borrower relationships today, most of whom borrow from banks as well as us, and we're just an outlet for them you know, when they need it. And sometimes some builders like to borrow from us and more and banks less. So what, I, what I've always said is if you build there or do what you say you're going to do, which is, you know, build on time, on budget, we're a little bit more expensive than a bank. It's when you don't do what you're supposed to do, which is building on time and on budget, and it takes 18 months instead of nine months. That's when our capital gets expensive. Mm-hmm. Does, um, would you take equity in the deal on top of interest? Not really. For us, uh, it's a fine line between between being a lender and a partner. Um, and if we want to be your partner, we want to be your partner um, and kind of structure a deal that way. And if we're going to be your lender, we're going to be your lender. You know, that being said, having the size portfolio we do and knowing the markets we know, I think that's one of the reasons builders do like working with us because we know what we're doing. But typically, we don't structure deals that way. That being said, you know, we do we we do provide equity. You know, in the five hundred thousand to two and a half, three million dollar range to these same projects. And again, that's a function of 
our builders were telling us that's something that they were interested in from us. And, you know, we thought it was interesting as well, predominantly with folks that we knew and trusted. Hey, maybe we pivot back to the rental side of the business. Yeah. How are you managing those properties? We have a third party property manager again, back to the, we know what we know and we know what we don't know. And, um, being in the apartment management business is just not somewhere where we're focused today. We, we do, the family has owned two assets, apartment buildings for a long time, and we do manage those ourselves, but we're not the best manager of urban apartment buildings. And we know that, and we think it's the right decision for our family and our investors to hire a third party. Do you still own any of the real estate from the lumber? We do own one of the original lumber yards in downtown Quincy. It's a TJ Maxx anchored shopping center today. Um, we're very proud to own that. We own a bunch of random land that the, you know, our forebears bought for some reason a long, long time ago. And then in Braintree, right off of Route 3 is a large shopping center. And we own, it's actually a condominium regime. It's where the Grossman Lumber headquarters used to be. It's on Grossman Drive. And we bought one of those buildings back in the Great Recession and still own it. Reminds me of, um, you know, like if you watch the movie, The Founder about McDonald's, mm. McDonald's is really a real estate business. Yes, they were. Like all businesses at their heart. I'm biased, but they're all real estate businesses. I mean, yeah. in a way they are. Well, the or, or equity type businesses like franchises. Mm-hmm. If so, you own the land. Yeah, I guess so. Um, <laughs> at the end of the day, though, the guy was kind of an asshole. <laughs> it's like screwed the original <laughs> owners over. <laughs> in a big way. <laughs> so, But that being said, I'm... Not trying to draw any parallels. I apologize for how that came out. <laughs> <laughs> Good transition in to my head. overrated. Let's cut that part. Yeah, out. I think that yeah. may be ended. In my head, I, I got a weird, funny look from Mark, and I'm like, oh shit, did I say that wrong? I make Ray self conscious. <laughs> you really do. I should stop looking yeah. at you. <laughs> Put Dan over there. <laughs> Wait, Dan said that, right? <laughs> Sometimes I just like to stare at Ray for as long as you I do. Can. You, it's very creepy. No, it's it's affectionate. Or Ray will just say something, and then Mark will just look at me with a puzzled look. On his <laughs> Mark just Mark just cuts me off, and we'll just ask a whole new question. Yeah, yeah some, some TikTok. Yeah, Let's yeah, just ignore that. Hey, are you proud? Anyway. I haven't brought it up once. Yeah, you know? yeah that is good. So you were looking at 30 to 80 unit spaces or size projects now. Yeah. Uh, Dan and I were just looking at like a 30 something unit potential uh, outside of the city a little bit. And uh, we just in couldn't Weymouth. get the numbers. In Weymouth. In Weymouth. Yep. Yeah, we couldn't get the numbers to work for some reason. And we were wondering, is that too small of a project? But you think maybe 30 is a good number? Well, our listen, our focus is in the city. Mm. So, you know, that being said, it's, you know, it's may not be a fit for us, but you know, for you guys, it may very well be a fit. It may be a, a next step in your evolution. So the question is just, Hey, if it's well, all of a sudden you're going from building, you know, 10 unit buildings to 30 unit buildings, you got to just manage the risk appropriately. And I just don't think the density was there for right. the numbers to work. Yep. It's probably the combination of the density and just the, the achievable rents, right. you know? Yeah. Listen, you're depending on the size, you're probably competing with condo developers and they can pay more for land than you can. And that's going to push the price of your dirt up. Well, we rent it, and even if you, even if we got it for free, it wasn't even going to. Oh, all right. Well, well so. I hope you didn't buy but then, it. But then, <laughs> no, no. plus, <laughs> plus the traffic sucks. But we were also, yeah. Well, it's a five-minute walk to the commuter rail. Well, south, no, just to, for you to manage it and get to the South Shore. Oh well, yeah. Ninety-three South is terrible. Awful. Go north. Go. Oh, north. <laughs> I agree. Well, that's why I'm in New Hampshire. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, I think that's a good segue into overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. So we'll throw out a term an idea, concept, uh, a product, and sort of a lightning round. Give us uh, your take as to whether that is overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. Do we get like a practice round here? Or like, we're just going to, I don't know what's going to come out of your mouth here. This is, this is, 
low-income housing tax credit deals? I mean, like from whose standpoint? I think they're great for the city and you know badly needed. So underrated. Under well, I. Uh, do you do them? It's more from like the uh, investors. We, 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 we invest in the deals. We'd love to build them ourselves, but again, we're not the experts in low-income housing tax credits. It's an extremely specialized space, so mm-hmm. we've chosen to do them with folks who breathe it in day in and day out. Yeah, a lot of paperwork. I'll do syndicated deals. I mean, <laughs> underrated. It's that's kind of our our lifeblood. Investments in southern New Hampshire cities. <laughs> Asking for a friend. Exactly. No comment. (laughs) (laughs) I just had a good one. Sorry. Completely blew your mind with that one. We looked at something. There was something on Elm Street in Manchester. We looked at, you know, five, six years back, a big, big mill rehab. Yeah. They did a lot of those. They converted the lofts and um, everybody complains how expensive they are. I think they're like $2,300 a month. Yeah. Yeah. Co-living. I would say overrated. Probably a good answer right now. Yeah. Right. Exactly. How about micro units? Overrated. Hmm. There was a hesitation just, there. But that was the second second person that said they were overrated. Yeah. What was the hesitation? Well, listen, I I don't know. I just, if you just kind of reflect on our last 15 months of living, you know, I think people are going to need a little bit of space. And it's, listen, it's a personal choice. Some people would rather live in a 350 square foot unit by themselves than la- rather live in a unit twice the, twice the size of a roommate. And it's um, ages and stages, I, I think. I'll tell you who doesn't like them is the uh, Zoning Board of Appeals in Boston. Did you watch yesterday? The micro yeah. units? Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Didn't, didn't go hot? Don't go well? Uh, yeah. Let's just say that, uh, you know, units under 400 square feet seem to elicit the ire of, uh, of some members. Is that because, and I didn't watch it, is that because it's seen as almost a way to force more density or? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I can't. Can't speculate? Yeah. That's fine. Inflation. As to overrated or underrated? I think underrated. <laughs> yeah. Underrated. Yeah. You like, cause you're an owner of real estate and it's a good store of value. Well, I'm saying under, I just, I, we are really concerned about inflation. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, you were obviously seeing a lot more about it in the headlines and everybody's talking about it, but I'm not sure it's really impacting people's investment decisions quite yet. By At gold? least not on the ground. Yeah. But do you think that's going to lead to trouble? I think it may lead to some challenges. Certainly. Well, yeah, inflation. I think, I think it's going to lead to interest rates rising faster than people expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they're going to have to pump the brakes on yeah. the economy. Yeah, the Fed actually came out today and said that they may consider doing that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, rate, interest rates have been too low for too long. And listen, I've been doing this a little bit longer than you guys, not that much longer. But like, since I started, you know, we've been saying that and they've gone one way and it's only a matter of time before. I we, just feel that it can't keep, it can't keep going. Away. Yeah, sure, for the first loan we closed when I joined my dad was a um, 65% loan to value loan on the shopping center we owned downtown Quincy for, you know, we did a 15 year loan at five and a half percent and we were jumping up and down, you know, that would be cost prohibitive to pay off today. And I think that's the, I think that's the thing is that if the rates bounce up or go up too much too fast, then it's just going to take the air out of any, any growth, right? It's just going to cause stagflation in my opinion, or, or stagnancy in, in economic growth. Yeah, and I just, um, you know, I don't know what the average duration of people's home loans are today, but hopefully they're, you know, 10, year, 10 years plus, because if they're doing loans that they're going to refinance in three to five years, now we would have said the same thing three, five, seven years ago. But if they, you know, I, I have real concerns that rates are going to jump dramatically. And even if they jump dramatically, they'll still be at historic lows. But if you're borrowing today at, you know, 
two and a half, three percent on a on a home loan, and it pumps to four and a half percent in five years or seven years, and you and you got to stay there. That's can be. Pretty- I have a, we have a buyer that's buying a, a unit of ours closing tomorrow, and he was telling me that he has a, a relationship with one of like the law, the big banks. He told me that he's getting a a, a rate a seven year arm for two percent. I think it's almost piggish. It's slight tangent, but if you can get a 15 or a 30 year for, let's just say 4%, and then you're going to go cutesy and get a five-year arm to go from 4% to 2.8 or three, it's like, why play around the the margins like that when you can lock yourself and, and take that type of protection for what is a historically low rate? I hear you. you know, it, again, ages and stages. You yeah. know, if you're buying a home that you expect to live in for the next 10, 15 years, of course, that's the right Right place. Yeah, I think it's. I think it depends. Yeah, it depends I mean, on your. I think the plan. flip side to that argument is that no one stays in their home for thirty years. It's like a statistical fact that you will live in your home far fewer years than you think you will at the closing table. I think it depends on what stage of your life you're in. Yeah, if you buy a condo in your late twenties mm-hmm. and you know you're because of you know kids, mm-hmm. you're going to be out of the city in five years, and you get a seven year loan. I think that's yeah. defensible. Yeah, like two. Like my wife and I refinanced last year because we did a five year arm because the rates were ridiculously low, but because we know we're leaving the city in a couple of years because of kids, right? We need school, better school system and stuff like that. So it's like, we kind of planned it that way to save the money up front for a couple of years because knowing that we're just going to end up selling in four years anyway, so. Last round? Yeah. You guys got to go? House yeah. hacking. House hacking. Yeah, kind of living a little below your means in multifamily units as you are younger and grow be able to leverage that equity as you grow into your dream home later. Are you asking me if that's overrated or underrated? <laughs> I've, never heard, I've never heard that expression before. Can right. I just cut that? No, this, no, is, this is great. This is radio gold. House Ray hacking. just wants to House be hacking. vindicated. Sorry, on maybe I'm did. just maybe I'm just pulling from the bigger pockets. Is that a New Hampshire realm. terminology? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. It's. I think it's orig- origins may hail online somewhere. The Burr strategy. The Burr. Yeah. No, it's great if you can do it. Right. Yeah. It's hard. Sure. It's hard. All right. My last one, Airbnb <laughs> investments. Well, if it's permitted and you don't have the risk mm-hmm. of it not becoming permitted, you know, it's a function of cash flow and return. And do you want to, I mean, I, uh, and do you want to deal with managing it yourself yeah. or a third party management company? But I, listen, I think what Airbnb has done is it's been absolutely unbelievable. And that's a very real business model over time. Yeah. Do you guys invest in a hospitality or Airbnb? We do not. It's not a space that we really understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very much an operating business. It's yes. got very high highs and very mm-hmm. low lows. And as you may have kind of heard, we're not huge risk takers. So it's not a place where we play. Uh, my brother and I have been saying since we joined that, you know, in the next downturn, we wanted to invest with somebody who was an expert in the hospitality space, but we didn't do that over the last 15 months. So I'm not sure anything is going to change in the future. Well, for a business that's uh, pretty risk averse, you guys have done phenomenally well. Yeah. Thank uh, you very much. Reputable, respected companies in the city, in our space. Thank you. My brother, my brother and I are very lucky to be part of a family that's got a wonderful reputation. um, And we're just trying not to screw it up. No, man. It's been great having you on. Um, If folks want to follow you guys, or if we want to talk more about a sponsorship, how can people find you? (laughs) Uh, www.grossmanco.com. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. It's been great. And thank everyone listening, subscribing, reviewing, rating. We'll catch you on the next one. Reach out. Let us know what you want to hear next. (laughs) Take care, everybody. Cut that. (laughs) Creep. (laughs) 